Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One, and welcome back to another episode of our Box and One podcast. I'm joined here today by what I consider to be the foremost expert on all things Chicago Bulls, one of my Cinderella teams and one of those that I'm just I'm so excited to get to talk about because they've been a marvel here throughout the start of the NBA season. 17 and 8 where they're standing right now, second in the Eastern Conference. They've been beating up on teams on the defensive end, which is something that nobody really predicted coming into the season, and it's about time we settle in and talk about the Bulls because at this point in the year there's no denying they are legit. So joining us to talk about them is the second most important Steph in all of NBA basketball. That's Steph. No, Steph, how are you tonight? That's not a bad second to be. So I'll take it. Thank you, Adam. I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Of course. And, and Steph and I have known each other for a while. We've uh, rattled some ideas off of each other in the past, worked together on some draft coverage and X's and O's things, you know, over the last year or so. So getting him here on the podcast is an absolute must. And if you're not following him on Twitter, at Steph No, N-O-H, make sure you are doing so because he has some unbelievable video breakdowns, high insight into the game of basketball, and, and is just one of the more knowledgeable guys out there. But Steph, before we dive into the Chicago Bulls, we got to start with a question that we ask all of our guests here on the Box and One podcast. You're coaching a team and you're up three with five seconds to go, and it's the other team's ball. Do you foul? What do you instruct your team to do? So I've listened to all of your podcasts. I was a little bit prepared for this question. I, I was thinking about it uh, every time I listen, and uh, I want to relay an anecdote to you before I give you my answer. All right. It's about Tom Thibodeau, who is a coach that I admire quite a bit. I thought he was an excellent coach for the Bulls. I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but he was invited to throw a first pitch at the White Sox game one year. And uh, it's kind of funny what he did. So first thing he did was bought a few dozen baseballs. He got a Bulls staffer. He reeled some random person in to come out to a field with him. And he practiced this uh, first pitch throw over and over. Not only that, he practiced the walk up to the pitcher's mound. It was about 50 or 60 feet. Went back and forth, back and forth. He even practiced the little wave to the crowd that you do uh, after you throw the, the pitch. It was a little extreme. There was even a little league team that was waiting to start their practice on that field. And Thibodeau just begged them to have a little bit more practice time to throw this pitch. How have I and, not heard this story? It, yeah, it's a, it's a great story. And uh, I believe that he uh, he didn't even throw a strike when he actually went up there. Uh, but the reason I bring the story as a, up is that I'm a really firm believer in preparation leading to success. So my answer to your original question is, if you've never practiced fouling in that situation, then I would not instruct my team to foul. I personally, uh, I've never coached at a high level, but, and I know practice time is kind of a scarce resource. You can't get to everything, but I think that I would probably a lot, just like five or 10 minutes. You know, I don't think you need a ton of time just practice fouling in that situation. Uh, if you, if you don't do that and you ask your players to, you know, try to foul on the down dribble or whatever, I feel like, um, you're, you're kind of, setting your players up to fail if they, you know, some guys just aren't good at getting that instant instruction. So that's, I feel like that's on you as a coach, not putting your players in a position to succeed. Yeah. So well, yeah, if I, if I practice it, I would foul. If not, then I would just play straight up. Yeah, it's, it's funny because that's when I was in college, we didn't practice it, but there was a game in the NCAA tournament when we were up, I believe we were up two, maybe we were up three. I can't remember the exact situation. And uh, we're on the road against a top 10 team in the country at their place in the second round. So we're hanging on, trying to complete a, a major upset. 
And we instruct one of our guys, a teammate of mine, Brian Gurney, to foul uh, before a guy can get into his shooting motion because we had one to give, trying to make them inbound again. And the key to that was make sure we do it before the shooting motion, kind of get him as he's inbounding in the full court and, and not getting into his shot. But our guy Gurney went for kind of the steal and almost missed. And it got to the point where he was trying to make up for that a step or two later. And that was about the same time the guy launched into his shooting motion. So thank goodness he didn't actually execute word for word what he was told and had the IQ <laughs> to withhold himself. Otherwise, they'd have been shooting three free throws there. Yeah. So yeah, you want to avoid confusion in those situations. That's the most important thing. It's a dangerous game. But we could talk about basketball and all these different minutia time and time again here. I, I appreciate the Tom Thibodeau story starting yeah. because I uh, I can certainly relate to wanting to be prepared for everything. But one thing we were not prepared for this year is a 17-8 and eight start from the Chicago Bulls. They've been fantastic. Right out of the gates, this team looks like a, a complete 180 from where they were a year or two ago. New system, new guys that are in, in on offense and on defense making a huge difference. And to me, the defense is what stands out. This was a roster that wasn't seen to be one that had a lot of defensive aptitude on paper coming into the season. The way that the narrative was around the Bulls coming into this year was that they have a great collection of offensive talent and guys like Zach Levine, DeMar DeRozan, Nikola Vucevic, but they don't have enough individual defenders and they don't have the collective scheme to kind of compensate for the shortcomings of those three guys. And it has been very, very drastically not the case. So talk to us first and foremost about the defense. What is it that the Bulls are doing and, and why are they defying conventional wisdom with this personnel? Well, I think first of all, yeah, you talked about three defensive liabilities there. I do agree that Levine is probably a little bit below average as a defender. Uh, DeRozan is, is very bad, but I think Vucevic is actually like, okay, as a scheme defender and he anchored some pretty good defenses in Orlando. Now he had very good defensive teammates too. Um, but that's just to say that he's not going to be some sort of anchor that, you know, people were saying the bulls were going to be a bottom 10 defense. And, uh, I don't think Vucevic would hold you back that much, yeah. but the biggest thing is just that, um, Alex Caruso and Lonzo ball have been amazing. I mean, uh, they're just wreaking havoc out there. They were good in their individual roles in previous years, but when you combine those two, I mean, it's just ridiculous. Like they completely shut down an entire side of the court when they're playing help defense together. So yeah, that's, that's been by far the biggest thing. And, and I think anytime you have a subpar you know, rim protector, and I'm not to say that, that Vucevic is a, a bad guy, but he's just, you know, he's not going to get a ton of blocks at the rim. He's not Joel Embiid. He's not Rudy Gobert back there. He plays angles. He can be a little bit more aggressive on the perimeter than maybe some, but he's not this guy that you want standing back in front of the charge circle and just swatting shots all day long. So with that, how do you best help him? Well, you get great perimeter defenders like Caruso, like Lonzo, who can fly around the court, make sure that they're not giving up dribble penetration one-on-one -on -one, and really frustrate guys with the amount of pressure that they apply on the perimeter. And it's been, it's been really smart to see the Chicago Bulls use both of them on the floor together. I, I think it was, the, was it the Orlando game where they played together and they just disrupted the entire second court. Yeah, that was a blowout. Um, and Caruso has been in and out of the starting lineup. Uh, I think that don't quote me on this, but I think they're undefeated or maybe only have one loss when he is 
playing with the starters and obviously like he's with Lonzo in those units. So something I'd like to see a lot more of, uh, you mentioned their on ball defense, which of course has been terrific. Um, but I think they've also been super impactful as help guys. I, I think the biggest thing that they do is they're so good at shrinking the floor. They're always in driving gaps. They're able to recover with really tight closeouts. They know when to stun at shooters. And the, the biggest thing is this, this ability to be in two places at once. Um, so I think that, uh, that just takes away so much of what the other team is trying to do. Uh, they're also diligent about reading scouting reports. So they know what plays are coming. They know who to help off of and that anticipation and knowing what's going to happen before it happens is that secret sauce to being in two places at once. And just, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, helping out Vucevic, helping out their weaker teammates and, um, preventing teams from getting to the rim and, and, uh, generating advantages. And you talked about the being in tune with the scouting reports, right? And to me, that's the sign of a veteran team, especially during the regular season, a bunch of guys that know the personnel that they're going up against and know how to best combat that, combat that and work together. You know, this is a Bulls team that doesn't have very many young contributors. Pretty much everybody is in their fourth or fifth league, fifth year in the league or beyond. And, and that's where, you know, I think there's still a little bit of youth to this roster. It's not a very old one. It's older, but it's not very, very old but it's a lot of guys that simply know how to play, know how to get through a regular season and do all the things that they need to do to impact winning on games. And, and I know we talked about it before the season. I was one of the few guys out there that thought the Bulls were going to win 50 games this year. And this isn't me trying to take a victory lap, uh, but it really came down to my, my thought that the concerns in the defense were overblown. Part of that's a personnel issue, right? I don't think that Levine is as bad as he's gotten the reputation for. He's just never been on a winning team. And there's no substitute for playing impassioned defense like when the game is on the line and every single one matters. You know, the, this term empty stats we hear a lot on offense. Guys who play on bad teams and just get buckets, they get labeled with this empty stats uh, label, really, because they don't win a bunch of games for it. When guys like Devin Booker and now Andrew Wiggins and Golden State, like how many of them shed that label once the team around them becomes really good and they still score those points. I think it's the same thing on the defensive end of the floor with Levine. He's gotten this reputation of being a bad defender because he hasn't played in many games where the stakes of his defense really matter. And we're finally starting to see that. We have a coach in Billy Donovan who creates a culture and holds those guys accountable. And I don't think he's ever had a defense in his years coaching in the NBA finish worse than 12th league-wide in defensive efficiency. He demands that of his guys, and he knows how to coach defense. And when you surround Zach Levine with more capable players that are going to keep the Bulls in games, you see a higher uptick in just his intensity on that end of the floor. Yeah, with uh, with regards to Donovan, I think he's done a great job with uh, – Levine and DeRozan in particular, I, th I think what he is really good at is empowering his players, um, yeah. hiding their weaknesses and showing off their strengths. So um, I think that, yeah, Levine and DeRozan are going to make mistakes, right? But he figures out a way to scheme around that. I'm, I'm stealing this from Steve Jones. I just listened to the Dunker Spot uh, this morning before I, I jumped on here with you. But he mentioned that what Donovan has done is have those guys pull in early. And I think that both those guys, their recognition is not 
the fastest on the defensive end. So if you're forcing them to make long rotations or just react very quickly, that's where they're going to look bad. Yeah. When they start out in a help position already as the plays develop, I think it makes it a lot easier for them. And then the other thing Donovan does really well is um, when he has their offense, offensive load get a little bit crazy. Like DeRozan has been carrying these bench lineups that are uh, pretty weak on offensive firepower. So what he does is he surrounds these guys with defense first players so that teams can't tire Levine or DeRozan out, you know, forcing them to run around a million screens and also uh, carry the burden of the entire offense. So it's just, you know, small things like that where Donovan knows that um, he has to help those guys. And I I think he's doing a great job of it with his scheme and his rotations. And and let's give credit to Karnasovic too in the front office for how they've assembled the roster by getting so many of those defense first guys that can be a little bit more plug and play and still have an impact on those second units, right? Like we know Lonzo and Caruso were the two highlight acquisitions from the defensive standpoint, but even guys like Javante green or or Derek Jones jr. Who's really been rejuvenated by playing a little bit more as a backup center and a screen and roll type of guy offensively, his role pops. So now his athleticism on the defensive end can really show like just finding those plug and play pieces to be able to execute that. I think a a ton of credit needs to go to the front office for sculpting the perfect role players around a really solid offensive core. I agree. I mean, I think that uh, they've, they've totally reshaped the roster. First of all, like the only guys that are still there from the Garpax era are Levine and Kobe white, I believe. Um, so obviously, you know, this team is way, way better than, uh, the previous iterations under, uh, previous management. But you mentioned these guys, these role players. Um, I think a lot of credit does have to go to Karnishevis, but a lot of credit also has to go to Billy Donovan because the way that he's used these guys has been innovative. Like uh, take, for example, Derek Jones Jr. You were talking about, he wasn't playing for Portland. I mean, they were totally willing to trade him. He was getting DNP'd for most of the end of the season. Uh, And he was playing primarily small forward for them. Now, Billy Donovan is playing him as a small ball five a lot of the time, or as a power forward, he's, Barely, I don't, I don't even know if he's played any small forward this entire year for the Bulls. Um, so that's a situation where he's been on a bunch of teams. Derek Jones Jr. has been on a bunch of teams. Um, I think people have had the idea of playing him as a small ball five, but nobody's actually tried it. So give Donovan credits. It's worked great. He's looked fantastic in that role. Uh, Javante Green, you mentioned, is another player where he was getting DNPs for your, for your Boston Celtics. I know you're a big Celtics fan. Adam. Oh, I know. <laughs> I wonder, like, did you see this when you were watching Celtics games that he could be like a useful rotation player? I mean, I saw the, the way that he was going to stick in the league was by being defense and energy. And, and that's really who he is. And, and that's who he was on the Celtics. But I didn't think that their system of a little bit more isolation driven basketball and standing around one-on-one lent itself well to him blending in or finding a spot on offense that offset his lack of ability to really shoot or score in a lot of impactful ways. And he's finding a little bit more natural fit in the Chicago system. That's allowing him to have more of a breakout year. Uh, but no, I, I honestly did not think he was going to be a, a rotation stalwart in the NBA. Yeah. He was a throw in, in that yeah. Tice trade. Uh, look at the way Donovan's used him. You know, that's another example where he's hidden a lot of his weaknesses. You know, Javante green is a very flawed player. But um, he doesn't have to score for the Bulls. You know, he can just uh, be this super athlete that gets a lot of rebounds and plays great defense, offensive rebounds, scores that way, scores off cuts. Um, so, yeah, it, it just speaks again to what I was saying. Uh, I think Thad Young is another great example of this, too, last year, where 
Um, Donovan had him playing point center. And how many teams has Thad Young been on, you know, throughout his career? And no coach has ever thought to use him in that way. Billy Donovan did. And Thad had a career year last year for the Bulls. Um, so I think Donovan is very creative in the way that he can find these role players that Kernishvist gives him and get rotation quality minutes out of them, get them to have career years under him. Uh, just a testament, yeah, to both of those guys. Yeah, and here's something great with with Derek Jones. Looked into the the position estimates that they have on Basketball Reference. He's getting 17 percent of his minutes this year at the center position, while getting zero in his entire career before this season. He also is getting 55 percent of his minutes at power forward spot. So about less than a third of the time, he's listed as the small forward. That's the the second. Excuse me. That is the lowest rate of his career. Yeah, that's uh, that's all Billy. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it's not Billy. like he played for bad coaches before. I mean, Terry Stotts is a pretty good coach, pretty creative coach, and you know he didn't think to use him in that way. So, uh, and also Spo too. He played for the Heat, so he did. He yeah, did. credit well, to Donovan. Let's keep on Billy Donovan for a second because I think this is a huge one eighty from the previous coaching staff and, and regime that we in we had here in, in Chicago. And I like to refer to him as he who must not be named. Right? <laughs> let's let's not bring this up and go all the way back there, but. Obviously, you talk about him being innovative, finding ways to blend in role players and make the most out of his roster and making chicken salad out of uh, maybe slightly less prime versions of chicken. But what are some of the adjustment abilities that you've seen from him, either as an in-game coach or, or somebody who has to change and tinker with the rotation? Where do you see him as somebody that can coach in a seven-game series for the Bulls? So I think Billy Donovan has a reputation of being a great regular season coach overachieving. You look at that Thunder team that was supposed to tank and um, I can't remember how many games it was a lockout or a shortened year. So right. can't translate to 82 games, but they were, they were the surprise of the league. Um, and then people say he fizzles out in the playoffs because he doesn't adjust. Well, I think it's kind of uh, unfair to give him that criticism because the fact is he gets so he gets so much out of these rosters, they overperform. So you know, they're not favorites in these playoff series anyway. Um, as far as the ability to adjust this season, I've seen a lot of it. Um, I mentioned on my Twitter timeline, I, I tweet way too much if you follow me, but uh, I, in this Nuggets game, you know, they were, they came into the game with a game plan of doubling Jokic and he had like 15 assists or something in that game. He was just tearing the balls. I mean, you can't double Jokic. Like he's just the best he, passer. He's a G you know. code. Yeah. Yeah. So they took off the double like at halftime and um, forced Vucevic to guard him one-on-one. That's not a great option either, but it's better than doubling. And uh, that was the difference in the game. You know, they won the game. They kind of ran away with it at the end. Uh, There's another game they played about a week ago against the Hornets where um, PJ Washington was running off all these ghost screens and getting um, open threes. I think he hit four threes in the first quarter. So Donovan switched up the pick and roll coverages midway through the game. You know, he had... um, the Bulls pre-switch on those plays. He had his guards start peelback switching too, uh, just mixing things up to keep the Hornets off guard. And that also ended up in like a, a big win for the Bulls. They, they ended up winning by double digits. So um, I just don't really understand where that reputation comes from in regards to him, like his rotations do. Some, some of the, I mean, every coach has had to deal with this this year, but you know, the Bulls have had key players missing just hours before tip-off because of COVID. Like uh, the game, the first game Vucevic missed, I think he had like no more than two or three hours to prepare. He just found out. And same with DeRozan. That was a day of thing where he just had to 
scramble and tell IO an hour before the game started that you're going to be starting tonight. So I think he's very good off the fly, um, just figuring things out. And he, uh, yeah, I think that reputation of being bad at adjusting is, is not well-deserved. Yeah. And look, I, I think a lot of that reputation comes from his first year coaching in the NBA, where he took the Oklahoma city thunder to the Western conference finals and they blew a three, one lead to the golden state warriors and having the opportunity to be up three, one and then lose three straight by nine. I think it was by like nine by seven and by eight. Like they were all kind of one or two possession games at the end that just ballooned a little bit, a little bit lower, more down the stretch. He just got this reputation as a guy that's not going to change or adjust or, or find ways to carry his team to victory. And I, I agree. I find that very unfair. I think Billy Donovan's one of the five or six best NBA head coaches right now. And to be able to get him in Chicago and sync up the timeline of adding this roster with veterans who are going to buy in and be willing to win now with a coach who really maximizes them throughout the regular season is going to lead to a lot of positive results for the Bulls. And it's been, again, it's been great to watch from our standpoint and see the improvements from he who must not be named. <laughs> and I think there's no, no area where that's more evident than the offense. Now, Donovan came out uh, maybe a week or so ago talking about how he always believes that the offense takes a little bit more longer than the defense to get meshed on a, on a team of all new players. When you have DeRozan, Levine, and Vucevic, all guys who are all-star talents and really, really good scorers that can go out there and get 20 on any night, you've got a lot of cooks in the kitchen and guys that are learning how to play off of each other. So I know it hasn't been the most ideal start for everybody in that trio offensively. And, and I think that's a little bit directed at a guy like Vucevic, who numbers-wise hasn't been terrible, but he's only averaging about 15 a game. So what is it that you're seeing from how those three have meshed, whether it's from Donovan's perspective with how he calls plays and tries to integrate everybody, or just the natural stuff of how they are learning to play off of each other? Yeah, I think you're right where you say that it is going to take time. Donovan's not a control freak. You know, I've heard that, for instance, like Rick Carlisle just calls plays on every single possession. Donovan will call plays on stoppages. So on free throws, you know, obviously timeouts, he's drawing stuff. But for the most part, he just lets those guys flow into stuff. So that involves a lot of um, reads from your players and a lot of comfort and them knowing where their spots are, what they're going to do, whether they're going to cut, whether they're going to reject a screen, stuff like that. So yeah, that stuff just takes time. Like you can't rush that. Mm-hmm. As far as Vucevic, um, he's definitely been the weak link between those three players. Obviously, DeRozan has been like a top five player in the NBA this year. Nobody could have expected that. Levine has been kind of kind of the same as last year, I guess. And then Vucevic has taken a pretty big dive um, in his stats. But uh, the the way that he was used in Orlando, you know, everything ran through him. Ton of post ups. The Bulls did that too when they first traded for him. And now he's playing as a as in this five out system, running a lot of delay stuff. Um, yeah, most of his time is spent on the perimeter instead of the block. So completely different role for him. And the ball hasn't gone in for him. There's no denying that, uh, when he's been shooting it, but he's still providing a ton of value. I think, I mean, like you look at how the bulls have played when he was out with these COVID protocols, completely different offense. Uh, they were way better with Vooch. I haven't looked at the numbers, but just from the eye test, uh, they, they had to scrap so much of the stuff that they do. So I think he's providing a lot with just his screening his gravity um yeah his he he has great ball skills and um great feel for when to pass 
and he has so much control of the offense. So um, he's just invaluable. Yeah. So even though, you know, the shot is going to fall for him eventually, I think like he's, his rim numbers were horrible. I haven't looked at them recently, but yeah, he's it, shooting like under 50% from the rim, which is crazy for center. That's the real surprising thing for me is where he's kind of been at the rim right now. And, and look, he's, as I'm bringing the stats up right now, uh, he is shooting 53.8% at the rim. He's a career 66% shooter at the rim. So way below his normal average, especially when you take a look at the, the fact that the Bulls are a solid shooting team. They're not poor by any means. He has the spacing around him to be able to finish there. He's just not converting, whether that's because he's being used in different ways that he's not used to, whatever that is, it, it does need to kind of catch up there. But the, you hit the nail on the head by saying this offense is a lot better when he's on the floor. The Bulls are 3.5 points per 100 possessions better with Vooch on than when he's off. And that doesn't sound like a major number for a team, but when you talk about how good DeMar DeRozan has been carrying those bench lineups, the starters versus bench on off or plus minus numbers are going to be a little bit skewed. So I think that Vooch has been great, despite the fact that, you know, he's he's not converting in the ways that he's used to on the interior. But I, I think more than anything, when it comes to the, the Chicago Bulls right now, and, and when you're trying to figure out different ways to, to feed everybody, there's this knowledge of where do guys get points from? Where are they most comfortable? And when you have a really good defensive team like the Bulls do now, they are the most efficient transition offense in the NBA. And that's fueled by their defense. They do a great job of creating turnovers. You have the world's best outlet passer in Lonzo Ball, who's always looking ahead and, and over the top of defenses, and a bunch of guys like Levine and Alex Caruso who want to push tempo and try to pick up their speed and, and pressure. So guys like DeRozan or Levine or any of these guards are getting more points in transition and getting their early touches. To me, if you're Billy Donovan and you have those few instances where you're dialing up play calls for somebody, it should be centered around Vooch, who's not the guy that's going to feast in transition because he's not the first one down the floor. So maybe the best way to get him involved is to take a little bit more of a focus on him in the half court while knowing that DeRozan and Levine are still going to be able to get theirs through what the Bulls do naturally transitioning from defense to offense. Yeah, I agree. I think Donovan's done that a little bit too. He draws up a lot of the ATOs for Vucevic, especially early in the game to get him going. I think a lot of coaches do that for their big men. They do. And, and, and Steph, sorry to interrupt, but I, I'm so curious as to whether there's actual data out there or tangible proof that shows if there's an impact or an effect to, to whether that's positive. Like I know at lower levels of basketball, I always love to, to do that with other teams is to try to get a, a post touch or a paint touch early on. But it's for, for my purposes, it's to see how they defend us, not necessarily mm -hmm. to try to get our big man going, but to say, are they going to double the post? Are they going to dig really heavily? Are they collapsing on that? Where are we going to be able to get shots from when we get the ball on the inside? Yeah, that's interesting. I've never heard that. That would be a very uh, interesting study to do. I'm going to have to bring that up with my analytics nerds. <laughs> well, I'm the wrong guy to ask for that. That's That's for sure. I don't have the time nor the resources to try to to pull something like that off, but uh, the offense is going to be fine. And look, the bulls already have a really, really strong one. They're sixth in offensive rating. I think a lot of that has to do with, again, the defense to offense, the half court metrics will continue to improve as these guys mesh, but with the defense performing the way it is and two fire starters and guys like, like Lonzo ball and Alex Caruso, who have really changed the culture in Chicago and then enough offensive talent with their star players that they have, 
I mean, this is a team that should be top 10 in offense and defense by the end of the season. Uh, these bulls are not going anywhere. Totally agree. Yeah. Uh, it's even dating back to the preseason. They were uh, historically like, I think a top 15 team in like the last 20 years in preseason. And people were saying, you know, it's just preseason. It doesn't matter. They beat all these great teams uh, early in the year. And people are saying, you know, the same stuff. It's just a fluke. But at this point, you know, we're quarter into the season and um, I, I, I think that these guys are definitely for real. I don't want to say anything crazy here. I was, I was right on the verge of saying a uh, bold prediction, but uh, let's just say that um, I think they can make some noise in the playoffs for sure. And it, there's no telling if this is even the final roster. The Bulls have some avenues to improve. So if uh, Karnaschevis has shown us anything, it's that he's not afraid to make moves. And, and we'll talk about that before we sign off today. I think that's the, the appropriate spot to leave things. But before we get there, I, I think for me, as I've done a lot of research on the Chicago Bulls over the last week or so, I've found the word culture coming up a lot in different interviews, in ways that these guys are, are you know, players are, are talking about their coach or their season and how they're surprising people. Culture is really the one word that comes up. And if you talk to Billy Donovan or you listen to what these players are saying, a lot of it is attributed to Alex Caruso that he has come in with his defensive mentality and how hard he plays and his willingness to do all of those little things and guard every single position on the floor, despite being one of the smaller guys out there as being something that raises the competitiveness of the group in total. And, and to me, the most indicative part of that was an interview with Kobe white when he returned talking about his defensive engagement, something that he was not known for in his first couple of years in the league or at North Carolina, but he talked about not wanting to disappoint his teammates, that the standard has been established and now it's on him to make sure that he doesn't let them down and doesn't get exposed by being the one guy on the floor who's not playing hard enough defense. And culture, in my opinion, is the most overused term in all of sports because it's something that we all strive for. We all think is the difference maker, but it's very hard to pinpoint and put your finger on exactly what that means. So it gets overused. It gets tossed around. Everyone says, is this culture? Is that culture? Like To me, culture is just not wanting to, to be the one guy that disappoints your teammates. And that is for a coach like Billy Donovan or for a new player into the mix like Alex Caruso, for them to develop that this early on and through the regular season over the course of an 82-game year, where so far they haven't let up through 25, is incredibly remarkable. I mean, what's your take? on the culture, the buy-in of this Bulls team? Because I know you have a lot more access than I do and, and are more intimately involved in the day-to-day. -day. Am I reading this right, that this is a team that really buys into playing together and rallies around their defensive identity? Well, to be clear, um, I'm, not, I'm not around the team, so I can't speak from a personal level, but sure. from what I see in the games and reading stuff, um, I think you, you stated it really eloquently. Um, I don't know what it takes to build a good culture. I think that a lot of us can, we know when we see a good culture. I think a good indicator of strong culture is when players and coaches have the ability to have very difficult conversations. That's one of Billy Donovan's strengths in, in my opinion is um, you have these coaches that, um, you know, they basically never criticize their players. And then you have other coaches like, for instance, he who shall not be named who go way overboard and just constantly are throwing their players under the bus, right? What Billy Donovan does is he very respectfully 
will say when he got a level of play from one of his players that did not meet his standard. Uh, and that's hard for, that's extremely hard for a coach to pull off. Uh, you have to have like a lot of respect, mutual respect between player and coach there. So yeah, Alex Billy- Caruso too, you mentioned, he's another yeah. guy who, you know, um, you see him, you know, pushing players on defense, pushing teammates on defense, yelling instructions at them. Uh, and, you know, like he was a role player coming to this year. I saw him doing that with LeBron on the Lakers. And that's a really tough thing to pull off. You have to have a ton of respect. So I think Caruso, as you mentioned before, he is a big part of building that culture. He's brought some stuff from championship teams and all these guys, you know, they are willing to uh, tell each other when they make a mistake, they don't take it personally. And it's because they're winning and they know that this is how you win. You know, you, you have to tell people uh, when they're making mistakes and how to improve. Yeah, and, and I think Billy Donovan, like he is the master of speaking to the media and giving you an answer that sounds so great. It makes you want to buy like, Yeah, coach. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. But he actually says nothing. <laughs> yeah. There's there's very little substance to what he gives. But you walk away from his answer and listen to him like, OK, I, I'm with you. Like he's just he's the master of how to communicate in a lot of those ways. And I think you're, you're right. That's, that allows him to make sure that he's not showing up his players in the media or, um, you know, during the games in, in a way that's, that's really important and allows them to buy in because they know he has their back, but culture always starts with the players. You know, they Tom Izzo at Michigan state always said a player coached team is always better than a coach coached team. That the more you can do to have your players take ownership over the process and make sure that they're kind of stewarding growth and not just relying on the coaching staff to correct every mistake, the better off it's going to be. Because at the end of the day, you're not, as a player, you're not accountable to your coach. You're accountable to your teammates. I always say to our guys, I could care less if you ever let me down after a game, right? If we lose by 40 on the road, you should never come into the locker room and say, man, I let coach down. It should always be, I let my teammates down. And in order to get to that spot, you've got to have buy-in and trust and communication and all those different things. And to actually see that be a night and day difference from where the Bulls are now versus where they were the last couple of years, to me, it, it's, yes, it starts with Donovan and Kernisavis and, and the structure that they have in place, but it's the players who are the ones that are executing it and, and making sure that they're staying on each other for all those little things. And again, Kobe White coming in, and not wanting to disappoint his teammates says the world to me about the culture that's really been started here in Chicago. Yeah. The other guy that I would mention, uh, it's a good indicator for the culture is IO, who I know you wanted to talk about as well. Uh, I think yeah. it seems like you're a pretty big fan of him, but he's another guy. Donovan just said after this game that he has difficult conversations with IO teammates, love him. You know, you, you see, uh, the guys on the bench celebrating huge after every play. So um, yeah, I think it's, uh, up and down the roster. They, they seem to be very close and, uh, great culture. So, so let's talk about IO then, because he is the one young guy on this roster. That's really receiving a lot of minutes. He's, he's the rookie here, um, you know, second round pick. And, and by my measure, that was a little bit of a, a miscalculation by a lot of front offices. I had a first round grade on him, had him in the top 25 on our overall big board, not necessarily because he's a great player at one specific thing, but because he's very good in a lot of different areas and he's super, super competitive. It, it, read any type of article about the type of kid person work ethic that he had when he was at the University of Illinois. 
and how Brad Underwood raved about him as being somebody that started and changed their culture into a winning one. Those are the type of guys that typically can evolve into being a really good role player in the NBA. So what I love about the IO pick for the Bulls was not necessarily the value of getting a guy that I think is a first round talent at that point, but it's that he fits into that type of culture where he's going to come in and not have this ego of, I was one of the best offensive players in the country when I was in college at Illinois, I need to be getting my touches. It's that he's very committed to doing whatever you need to do to win games. And Hey, someday down the line, he could be a 15 to 20 point per game scorer and continue to work on his game to evolve into that. But he's having a positive impact right now because of his mental makeup. And I think that speaks to the type of people and culture that Kernisivis is trying to build here in Chicago. I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here, Adam. Right. Um, and I want to know, uh, did you watch a lot of Illinois in the last couple of years? Uh, I will state that I do not watch much college basketball, so I did not. So I, I just want to get some info from you if you have watched a lot of it. I predominantly watched last year's film. I didn't watch a ton from two years ago, but I probably watched eight or nine full games last year, as well as a ton of clips on both he, Kofi Coburn, Andre Curbelo. Uh, so I watch my fair share of Illini possessions. Okay. So the reason I ask is, um, so I know Brad Underwood is known for the spread offense, right? Mm -hmm. And I had heard that he switched in Io's junior year, the year before he got into the draft, they yep. switched to more of a continuity offense. So, yeah. yep. I mean, that just impresses me so much about Io because uh, as you know, like a spread offense, it's, it's, there's not a ton of ball screens in that offense. So the system that he's playing with the Bulls is like so, so different from what he did for most of college. And, you know, he has made a lot of mistakes, I think, um, but he's also made a ton of impact plays. And uh, somebody told me today, which I thought was great, is like uh, I was basically a goldfish, right? Like he has such a short term memory. Uh, when he makes these mistakes, he does not carry it onto the next play, which I think is a huge, huge thing that a lot of NBA players do. And it holds you back a ton. Yeah. Um, and he just goes right on and, and makes a, a crazy impact play like the next time down. So big credit to him. Um, you know, he's starting from a place where he has to learn a lot. And you, you can see, as you talked about um, that mental makeup, he's, he's just getting better and better every game. And most of the time, I think improvement in the NBA is not linear because there are those moments of doubt that hold players back or they're not sure exactly how they're supposed to be improving. I was just such a coachable guy and you see that linear improvement, which is, is just remarkable to watch. Yeah, no doubt. And, and I'm going to go on my 32nd nerd rampage here about the Brad Underwood offense stuff. So obviously starting with a little bit more spread stuff and, and was described when he was at Stephen F. Austin in Oklahoma state before coming in and getting early on in Illinois as kind of Princeton on steroids in a lot of different ways. I know that term's thrown out a lot in college basketball, a lot of back screens into flare screens or ball screens with quick hitting movements. He changed it up when he got IO and, and really started to try to play a little bit more around the pick and roll. So specifically last year, they moved to a lot of dribble handoff to ball screen sets, tried to get guys in advantageous positions. One thing that I noticed a ton from watching their offense was they would put IO in the left offensive corner so that when he, when he would come off of a dribble handoff into a ball screen on the wing, he would be attacking middle to his right hand pretty consistently. So they were patterned as much as they are a kind of continuity offense. They were very patterned and trying to get guys to certain sides of the floor so that they could come off and use their strengths to their advantage. So 
I think with with Io, he was put in that type of position by Underwood to show out and have some of that offensive production. But to me, there was so much there with his total package that it doesn't take away from the the long term upside for a guy like him. So, turning that question on to you, Steph, watching him through the first twenty five games of the season and virtually of his career, what are the next steps for him to take to continue to become a better basketball player and impact the Chicago Bulls in a positive way? Well, as with most rookies, I think he's playing just way too fast generally. And when the game does slow down, he does have moments where it slows down for him and he plays a lot better. On-ball defense is surprising to me. Um, It's already pretty good. I did not think that would be the case. His off-ball defense, like I mentioned, um, you know, he still has a way to go. Uh, I think he makes like some pretty egregious mistakes uh, that it's hard for the casual viewer to pick out. Like there was a possession a couple of games ago where the bulls were blitzing a pick and roll. And uh, he was the low man, as you know, like if you do not pull over, you're going to give up an uncontested dunk. Yep. And luckily uh, the other team didn't see that pass, but he left a man wide open underneath the basket. Uh, they played the nets the other night and he just like completely abandoned his low man responsibilities there gave Marcus Aldridge a wide open duck. But the, I mean, those things are going to happen when you have a rookie uh, who's coming straight from college. So uh, normal that he hasn't picked the stuff up right away. And like I was saying before, uh, just such a coachable guy that I think he is eventually going to figure that stuff out. Uh, the thing that also is surprising me on the offensive end is, you know, I, I didn't watch a ton of IO in college, but I read um, pretty much everything that I could. Uh, as far as like scouting reports and the consensus seemed to be that, like you said, he's good at a lot of stuff, but not great. And how's that going to translate? He's going to have to have a different role in the NBA. He's not going to be the primary guy. He's going to have to play off ball and just become a really good three-point shooter. Uh, I think some of the stuff actually is translating. Like he's able to break guys down at the NBA level against um, better defenders. Still, uh, I, I think he has not quite adjusted to finishing over bigger guys once he gets that initial advantage, but yeah, I'm just surprised that more stuff, more of his game, uh, as far as creation has translated, than a lot of people probably thought he's so damn long. Like those arms are, are every time I see him, I'm almost surprised by how long and lanky he is. And maybe it's just that the shorts are looking a little shorter than ever. So guys always tend to look <laughs> more like that. Like I got to try that and pick up. Maybe it'll make me look better. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know if anyone wants to see my tiny thighs out there, so I'm going <laughs> to keep the knee longs. But uh, it's he's had a really good start to his NBA career, and I've been been really pleased that the Bulls are the ones that are reaping the benefits of it because he fits in so well with the culture that he that they've created. So, Steph, two final questions here as we start to wrap up our time together. First and foremost, not trying to be a guy that comes in here and moves the goalposts, but it seems like expectations for this Bulls team are ramping up as we go through the season. We realize that the 17 and eight start is pretty legitimate. So how do we judge this year for the bulls when all is said and done, what ultimately is going to have to happen in order for us to look back at this 2021, 22 campaign and say, it was a success for the bulls. I think it's already a success. I mean, nobody was talking about the bulls for the last couple of years. You have to keep in mind where this team came from the past four years. They had 27, 22, 22 and 31 wins. They were terrible. They were a boring team. <laughs> they were trying to build around Larry Markinen, Chris Dunn, and Zach Levine for years, which Chris Dunn's not even in the league anymore. Um, and Larry's having a good year for the Cavs, but it just wasn't going to work. Like it wasn't a good fit in Chicago. I think it, um, 
yeah, they're using him a lot better in Cleveland. So for them to go from that to where they are now, and they had they didn't really have a lot of assets outside of Levine to build all this stuff. So it's it's incredible. I mean, you were high on them, but I don't think even you like did not think they were going to be this good. So they they could still finish 500 for the rest of the year, get bounced in the first round, and th- that would be a 45 win season, you know, which is way way more than uh, consensus. So I don't think that's going to happen. I think, as I said before, this team is for real. So. Um, I'm definitely expecting them to get around 50, if not more wins, but yeah, basically everything from this point on is gravy to me. Wow. Well, I, uh, I appreciate the candor there. I'm glad it's already a success in that way, but I I think the bulls are, you know, as they continue to win more games and stay at the top of the Eastern conference, it's going to become that moving of the goalposts that we talked about earlier of now they're going to start to say, okay, this should be a team that's in the Eastern Conference Finals or winning at least one playoff series because that's naturally what happens when you have a good team. You start to expect that really quickly. And I think the biggest indication of whether that timeline is going to be sped up is by if the front office ends up making a little bit more of an aggressive move. So you talked about it and alluded earlier that there are some tools at the front office's disposal to try to upgrade this roster. So kind of a two-pronged question here. One, can you walk us through what those tools might be and how they might accomplish a deal? And then what types of moves or or players would you want to add to be able to maximize the roster's output this year? So they have Patrick Williams, who is out for the season with this broken wrist. So that's, I mean, if they really do think that they have, some amount of championship equity, it would make sense to move him because he's not going to contribute this year. They have Kobe White, who has been pretty bad this season, but he's also struggled with COVID stuff and injuries. He had a shoulder injury that kept him out of all training camp. Still, uh, you would expect him to have a little bit of value. I mean, he was the number seven pick, uh, was it three years ago? And then they have some expiring deals uh, for salary matching purposes. And they have a Portland pick from the Larry Markinen trade. Uh, So, I mean, that's, that's some stuff, you know, I think that they need a four or five, they need more shooting and they need rim protection. So yeah, when Vucevic was out, Tony Bradley was the backup center who's okay, but uh, I think he's more of like a, you know, 15 minute per game guy or like a specific matchup guy when you're facing huge centers. Uh, it would be nice that they could have somebody that's able to play a little bit more schemes, uh, a little bit more mobile defensively as far as a big man. One name that I think would make a ton of sense for them is Harrison Barnes. He meets basically all of these criteria. I don't know if Pat and Kobe are enough to get that done and some salary filler too are enough to get that done if the Kings would be interested in that. But something that I would be looking for, uh, I would, I would be looking at if I were the bulls. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm super high on the bulls. I do think that they have championship equity if they make one more move. Um, and I've been trying to tell people like throughout the year, you know, even in the first couple of weeks of the season, I was like, this team is for real. You guys need to start watching this team. Um, and they've only, uh, kept on impressing with even bigger wins since then. So you know, these windows don't stay open very long. You never know when some catastrophic injury is going to happen. Uh, Chicago fans can tell you about that or just when something else is going to happen when some super team gets assembled. So when you when you have these opportunities, I feel very strongly that you have to seize them. And I hope the Bulls do that. Well, knock on wood here. Knock, come on, we got we to knock on some wood here. No injuries. <laughs> here we go. Nothing major because I love watching this Bulls team. 
Like when I'm looking through league pass or trying to figure out if there's a game on that I want to watch, the Bulls are consistently one of the, the top teams that I watch because they're so damn fun on defense. And they've got some tough buckets and guys that can make shots offensively. But their defense is so much fun to watch. From a coaching perspective, it's a dream kind of seeing them. So this is certainly a front office that has some tools to try to make a, a move or an adjustment. I don't know if they're quite bold enough to move on from Patrick Williams because I know there's a lot of people within Chicago that, that really like him. But if, uh, if this is the time to go all in, if there's one thing we've seen over the last year of moves that Carnicevis has made, he's bold. He's going to go for it when he thinks the time is right. So if, uh, if this is a team that truly has championship aspirations, nothing would really be surprising if they try to, to add more to it and be competitive. So, Steph, thank you so much for joining us here for Talking Chicago Bulls. I always love catching up with you and being able to chat hoops. Let the people know where can they find you, what's going on in your life, and, and how can we continue to keep up with the great work that you put out there? Well, you can follow me on Twitter at Steph No, S-T-E-P-H-N-O-H. And rather than plug my work, I would like to do something different. And I would like to plug your work, Adam, because you are truly a man of uh, multiple different talents. You continue to impress me with all these different things that you do so excellently. I've learned a ton from you. So if my followers are listening to this podcast and they're not familiar with your work, you should definitely follow Adam. Uh, so much great X and O's knowledge. Your Substack is great. I'm a subscriber to your Substack. I encourage everybody to subscribe. And uh, you're part of Bulls Nation, man. Like you, <laughs> you. I want to. I want to. I have some receipts here. I want to recount some of these predictions uh, in the beginning of the year. John Hollinger, 37 wins for the Bulls. Mike Prada, 38 wins. 538, 38 wins. Nate Duncan, 39 wins. Uh, David Thorpe, 41 wins. My prediction was 46 wins. I thought that I was going a little. Uh, Homer on that pick, but that's going to be off. <laughs> Bulls Nation. One, one Adam Spinella had 52 wins for your Chicago Bulls. He was the only guy I know that picked uh, more than me, 46 wins. And he did it by a lot. It took a lot of uh, chutzpah, we'll call it, to make that pick. Predicted an offensive rating of 7th and a defensive rating of 12th. That is going to be spot on. You might be exact on that. So. Bulls Nation, stand <laughs> up. We are with you, kindred spirits. Ignore the fact I'm a lifelong Celtics fan. I am with you. Go Bulls. There's always time to change, Adam. Always time to change. You are a reformed Celtics fan. Uh, you, I think you will admit that Jean Rondo was extremely dirty in that playoff series against the Bulls years back. It's, it's time to uh, come clean on that. Yeah, and Joe King Noah was, was a saint in 09. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, but there's plenty of room on the bandwagon for you, man. Send me a picture of you dancing, and I'll add it to my gift that I uh, tweet out after every game. There we go. I well, appreciate it, Steph. Thanks for the kind words there, as always. Thank you for, for jumping on here. And uh, anybody else who's, who's looking to follow him, please follow him on Twitter. The combination of basketball IQ and lighthearted comedy on there with all your Bulls win tweets, it's fantastic to watch. Steph, thank you so much. Enjoy the, the holiday season and hoops that are coming up on our, on our radar. And go Bulls! <laughs> Thank you, Adam. I appreciate it. 